Welcome to Tech Talk with Optimal Rx. My name is Kristen Gilmore. I'm here with Julianne Grant, and we are ready to talk herbal medicine. Kristen and I are both practicing naturopaths with 25 years' experience between us. As big herb nerds, we are excited to explore all things phytotherapy and health with you. Hello and welcome. Julianne and I are joined today by naturopath Gordon Carruthers, who is presenting a webinar for us on phytomedicines for cardiovascular protection, which we're very excited about. And for those listeners who don't know Gordon, he's been working as a consulting naturopath and herbalist in Perth, Western Australia, and has gathered 27 years of clinical experience. Currently, Gordon runs a busy multimodality clinic in North Perth, and his first love has always been his clinic work. Gordon has a particular interest in treating stress, anxiety, and depression, and indeed the whole sympathetic nervous system with the litany of conditions that flow from that area. And he also has an interest in the treatment of cancer, particularly using herbal medicine in this area. Uh, Gordon's experiences in recent years have drawn his interest also to the cardiovascular system and the heart in particular, as well as the influence of vaccines upon the heart. Gordon is also passionate about iridology, sclerology, and herbal medicine, and has taught these subjects at Perth Academy of Natural Therapies and Paramount College in Western Australia. Gordon enjoys talking to people and educating and has particularly enjoyed his time doing talk back on Perth radio, answering the listeners health related questions for the last 18 years. So welcome, Gordon. We're happy to have you and ask you a few questions of our own. Hello, and thank you for having me. Hi, Gordon. Um, So Gordon, you have been a naturopathic clinician for many, many years, most of your working life, actually but you also spent time running large corporate nutritional departments. Am I right in saying that? I did. I think one of the hardest things when you become a qualified naturopath or herbalist is is getting from that, you know, I've I've got my degree to (laughs) now how do I get my patients? So when I qualified, which was in 1994, um, naturopathy, I was still explaining to people how to spell naturopathy. That that (laughs) word was not familiar to, to most and as such, um, looking for work in that field um, was, there wasn't anywhere you could go particularly. There wasn't that many large clinics in Perth at the time. Um, and to be honest, there still isn't. Uh, so at the time, I ended up getting an opportunity to work for a large corporate um, who had a busy uh, pharmaceutical uh, enterprise. And I ended up running their nutritional department for them for, the, for about 10 years or so. It meant to be just a short-term job. One thing led to another, as it always does. Uh, and next thing I know, you know, 10 years, 10 years have passed. Um, during that time, I was very lucky with those people, actually. They're a very progressive young group of guys. Um, anything that I suggested to them, they were willing to listen to. So uh, we bought iroscopes. We had consulting rooms put into pharmacies. Um, yeah, they were really um, open to just about anything. And uh, I learned a lot from them. I've, I've found that um, uh, pharmacists as a whole, on the whole, are a very ambitious group of people, a very driven group of people. And, um, and prepared to work long hours. So I learned business from them as much as anything else. And also it's great, you know, you're, you're kind of working behind enemy lines in some regards. <laughs> and uh, that, that capacity to, um, to talk to somebody about pharmaceutical medications and to get firsthand experience, I think is invaluable. And I, I really enjoyed my time working there. And generally speaking, the patients that come to see us are probably um, involved in both aspects of healthcare, both pharmaceutical side of things and- Yeah, the- most definitely naturopathic side of things so did that um you know that would have been a a fantastic opportunity for you to get a lot of on the ground experience sort Mm -hmm. of um i guess meeting patients like connecting with patients very much so and i was lucky in that scenario as well i could see patients during the day and i had an agreement with the pharmacist that if there was something more complex or they needed further treatment i was they were more than happy for me to refer to my own clinic so that worked beautifully for me as a feeder uh, into my own clinic. Uh, I was able to um, start my clinic slowly, steadily. Uh, and I think just being on the floor, when you have people coming up to you asking questions about anything, essentially, uh, it really, you start to develop what I think is important for a naturopath, which is that, that pattern, that um, ability to be able to talk about a subject um, and have statistics and, and um, information that you can draw on um, to help people. So, yeah, I really enjoyed that time too. It, 
being on the shop floor was a bit like uh, doing talkback radio. You've got no idea what's coming next. There's no way to prepare for it. Um, and it does keep you on your toes and you find out what you do and don't know very quickly. Yeah. And then you end up, you know, really practicing being present with your patients and, and yeah, very much learning, so. learning that communication of everything that we've learned and how to actually communicate that one-on-one mm. with the patient is really invaluable. So currently you, you own and you manage Perth Naturopathic and Herbal Clinic and have mm. probably seen thousands of patients over the years. Um, so, yeah, I think about somewhere between 40 and 50. Oh, I call that thousands. Yeah, 40 and 50,000. Yeah. 40 and 50,000, yeah, not, not 40 and 50. It would have been a long, slow 27 yeah. Very um, slow burn. But um, I, me- <laughs> um, <laughs> I mentioned in your bio that your areas of special interest include the nervous system, um, conditions as well as cancer. However, also more recently, the cardiovascular system and the heart have really drawn your interest as well. Yeah, so we wanted yeah, we wanted to know sort of when and how you developed that interest in, you know, particularly the prevention and management of cardiovascular disease. Well, I, I was thinking about this yesterday. Um, my very first patient in clinic back in 1993, I think it was, was a young girl who was about 17 or 18 who presented with cyanose lips. And I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. She had hooked fingernails, so that the fingernail that comes down over the end of the actual finger. Mm-hmm telltale signs for severe cardiac problems. Um, luckily, I'd just done differential diagnosis and pathogenesis and, and thankfully was up to it. But I thought, wow, this is an exciting start. Um, turns out she did have quite an extensive cardiac history. She'd had about, I think, seven holes in her heart from memory. Um, so yeah, that, that was my very first patient. So um, it reminded me, I, I don't think you have a choice. When I started doing statistics for this seminar, once we talked, um, I was pretty amazed at the statistics. Uh, Looking at uh, cardiovascular disease, it's responsible for 41% of the premature deaths worldwide. That's almost half of all deaths. So I don't think we have a choice here. If you haven't got your head around cardiovascular disease, um, it's going to be hard for you. You, We know we need to be aware of it. Sure, we see specific types, um, but it is everywhere, Mm. especially if you work in a a Western um, society, which most naturopaths do. Well, that's right. That's right. It's definitely it's it's rising rapidly, isn't it? And it's it's mm. a very uh, topical area of interest at the moment too. So, and we honestly believe, Chris and I have been talking over the year that we're going to see more of those cases walk through our door, no matter what you specialise in, yeah. as a contributing factor to their presentation. Right. Most definitely. I mean, they're considering again statistics that I looked at said that they're thinking there's going to be a two to threefold increase in the next twenty to thirty years. Yeah. It's going to become a dramatic amount of cardiovascular disease. Yeah, that's and, crazy. Yeah, what effect COVID has um, in the long run is really going to be very interesting to see. What we're seeing at the moment is evidence that um, COVID does affect the cardiovascular system at the time, but it's looking like we're going to be seeing long COVID or PACS, whatever you like to call it, or chronic COVID, uh, maybe going to be quite uh, a problem going forward. Yeah, I want to dive into that with you um, shortly because it is a fascinating topic and that's one of the things within your webinar that's um, hopefully going to draw a lot of practitioners in as well because, again, that is something we need to be across. Yeah. Uh, but I am I am interested, actually, within your own clinical practice, what types of cardiovascular disease or conditions are you seeing more commonly than others? You know, is it or, or is, it, is that not even a thing? Is it no, 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 it's a thing, definitely. Yeah. Um, look, hypertension probably is number one. I think that's the thing that I see most commonly and medications associated with that. Mm-hmm. Um, probably second to that, um, dyslipidemia. Uh, we're seeing a lot of people on statins these days. Um, I, I have my feeling towards cholesterol problems is maybe different than the run of the mill. I'm not a big believer in food affecting cholesterol as much as I am stress affecting cholesterol. I think cortisol levels, um, in my experience, at least have a lot to do with this. And I think, as I say, you know, you know I have an interest in uh, the sympathetic nervous system generally. Um, I, I believe most practitioners attract something to themselves. I, I don't know whether that says much about my stress levels. I'm not sure. But um, certainly that's what I find I track through the door. I mean, I talk about adrenals all day long mm. um, and that cardiovascular aspect is certainly that comes, something that comes into it. 
syndrome X or metabolic syndrome, um, I'm seeing more and more. Uh, I'm starting to see more so in women um, than I have done in the past, I think. Uh, the sort of the mid 50s uh, males are, you know, pretty common. We, we see that quite a lot. Um, whether it's on the increase or not, I don't know. Um, but certainly it's something that's fairly consistent. And that, that's something I've also seen over the last 20 odd years. Uh, initially, I would say the ratio of females to males patient-wise for me would have been eight to two or nine to one. But patient-wise, what we're starting to see is that now I'd say my ratio is more like six to four uh, females to males. So men are certainly starting to, to look towards naturopathy and natural health. And we're seeing quite a big change over the last um, five years in particular, I would say, in my opinion. And that, that's my experience at least. But then, I mean, it's fair to say that stress is a massive causative factor for cardiovascular disease. No, and yeah. obviously that's a big umbrella term. Mm. But stress, not only it's, its direct impact on whatever that pathophysiology may be for that condition, but also onto the habits that it will make you make someone change into, right? And that's eating habits. That's what we, addiction, you know, what we do to calm ourselves down, sleep. Mm. Exactly. Mm. So I think, I think that makes sense that we're seeing more of those kind of metabolic syndrome or dyslipidemia. Yep. any of those that are impacted by stress. I think that's a really important point. Um, yeah. I think that's, and look, my bigger concern about COVID is not so much the infection side of things, it's the mental health concerns. I think personally we're going to be dealing with this for the next 10 years and I just, I don't think we have enough people on the ground at the moment. Um, I don't know how hard it is to get a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a counsellor uh, in the Eastern States, but in Perth waiting times were up around eight to 10 months at times and you know, if you, if you did manage to get somebody, you were lucky. It wasn't a case of, did I find the right person or the best person or, or somebody I gel with? It was, do I, can I find anybody? It was, it's been really problematic. And that is unfortunately the same over in Victoria yeah. anyway, in Eastern States. It's there's some been, for mm. some people, over a year wait. Um, it's been really difficult. Um, there are plans to sort of try and promote extra services in that area on a government level. We'll just see what the outcome of that is. But I think emotional mental health going forward is, is one of our challenges. And that's, mm. oh, gosh, because for so many reasons, not necessarily the, obviously the virus itself, it's um, for so yeah. many hard impacts over the last two years. Yeah, dramatic impacts. Mm. Yeah. But during this current viral pandemic, I'll, I'll say, there appears to be a sharp rise in the incidence of cardiovascular disease like we were talking about before, mm. and that might be myocarditis, pericarditis, or even arrhythmias, and sadly, um, sudden cardiac death, if you look up the statistics yeah. of that in the recent yeah, quite true. So, yeah. yeah. With your research for our webinar that we're, that's coming up in a few weeks, uh, what... Well, I guess, did you find any causative correlations between the virus and cardiovascular disease? And are you able to maybe dive into that a little bit for us? Yeah, yeah. Um, look, yes, definitely. There, there seems to have been, I mean, uh, let's go back to maybe how we think this thing works. Um, the, the COVID side of things, when they looked at, there was a, one particular paper I read by a guy called Basso et al. And um, they took um, people who were deceased from COVID and did autopsies and looked at the, the people's hearts. And what they found was that in a normal myo or pericarditis scenario, you might expect lymphocytic infiltrate, you know, evidence that there's been an infection that the body's been fighting back. And that's not what they found. Um, in one or two cases they did, but mostly what they found was evidence of radical inflammation, mm -hmm. um, hyperinflammation. They were seeing uh, uncontrolled cytokine storms and damage that was caused by the inflammation more than the infection itself. So I think that's really what we've got to be looking at. As they've looked um, further down the track, as, as time is evolving or, or moving forward, um, they've been using cardiac magnetic resonance imaging on the heart. And what they've found in, in a dramatic amount of cases is that people who have had COVID, when they look at their heart, they're still seeing inflammation. Uh, in about 60% of cases. Now, what that means for the future, you just don't know yet. Um, the people themselves, I don't think, are aware of this. And as such, for us as clinicians, you know, clearly we can't organise a cardiac uh, image, unfortunately. Um, but one of the things that does appear to be um, concomitant here is troponin levels. Um, they seem to be elevated. Uh, what they were finding is in people who had lower levels of disease, um, the troponin levels were quite low. In, in more severe cases, the troponin levels were much, much higher. Uh, and then in the critically ill, 
it was almost universal that they had very high troponin levels. So whether that's going to be a little biomarker that we're able to use going forward to help us to understand where we're at, don't know at this stage, but certainly I'm holding hope that that might be something that we'll be able to use ourselves. So yeah, the, the inflammation is, seems to be the bigger part of this, um, mostly. Um, there are concerns about, um, like I say, the stress levels as well, that that's something that's intangible, it's not something that's easily measured, but uh, certainly inflammation and inflammatory markers using things like uh, CRP, ESR, um, and possibly some of the more unusual biomarkers like here, NT Pro and BP, um, and also um, some of the markers might help us to get an understanding of this. So don't, don't really know. It's getting into an area where we, we haven't really um, started to look at it yet. They're only just finding out this out. So a number of initial studies, but we'll have to see where we go with this. And the, the I guess, the inflammation um, picture in all viral conditions is so important to address mm. as, for us as clinicians, especially in the long term when there's this unresolved sort of inflammatory um, thing that's going forward yeah. so and just with this particular virus with the SARS-CoV-2 uh and any sort of correlation there what's the if you have come across this so, sorry Gordon I'm just sort of delving into it a little bit further <laughs> so the cardiovascular system in relation to this particular virus what's the attraction is it a uh, high density of ACE receptors in the spike protein or, or does it go beyond that Do, you know it seems to be the spike protein and the ACE2 receptors seem to be and the, the fact that ACE2 is particularly robustly um, represented distribution-wise in the cardiovascular system. That, that, that's the thinking at the moment. Okay. And that's why we're seeing the problems that we're seeing. Okay. So um, I guess that then leads us into what do we do about that? Uh, mm. From a herbalist point of view, um, anti-inflammatories obviously come to, come to the fore. Um, and, and I'm particularly keen on looking at herbs. I mean, good old turmeric. I think I love turmeric. covers so many bases. Um, but trying to look outside of that, look at something that's a little bit more cardiovascular uh, oriented. Green tea is another one that I've been um, looking at a lot too. Mm -hmm. um, it has a, a range of uh, properties that are very beneficial in this instance. So it's anti-inflammatory, it's cardioprotective. Um, I, I really think there's a, a good role for, for to play. And I'm going to quote some interesting little statistics just to generally with regards to um, tea consumption. The massive, massive uh, meta-analysis that was done, 195,000 people, it shows real benefits to drinking just any tea, not just green tea, uh, and the effects that that might have on helping to reduce cardiovascular disease and strokes in particular. That's fantastic research. I think some of that's mentioned in some of our tech sheets too mm -hmm. from, from green tea, but they're great herbs. And I think when you're talking about the classes of herbal medicines that you would choose, you're looking at those inflammation modulators, those cardioprotective type of herbs and, and particularly the ones that cross over in those um, two categories. Are there any other particular classes of herbal medicines that you would reach for, like immune modulators or anything well, the, else? That yeah, the immune modulators are really important here. Um, and the two that I'm looking most closely at are probably hemidesmus and corridalis. Um, sorry, cordyceps, not corridalis. Cordyceps <laughs> I really like because in these scenarios, fatigue is such a big problem as well, and cordyceps has that capacity to, to help there as well. Um, I'm also somewhat influenced by um, a guy that I met at a NHAA seminar uh, in 2012, a man called Paul Berger, who works for the North American Institute of Medical Herbalism. I love Paul's passion and his uh, philosophy. I, I don't know if you've met him or heard of uh, yeah. I haven't met him, but I read a lot of yeah. his articles. Yeah, okay. So Paul talks a lot about the eclectics, the phytomedicalists and the vitalists, and has also delved into Chinese medicine as well, traditional Chinese medicine, and draws information from each of those groups. I love the fact that he looks at the eclectics. I mean, there were people on the ground who were dealing with whatever came through the front door. You know, it could be the whole gamut of, of possibilities. So I like looking at his information, I'm, I'm strongly influenced by the energetics um, that he talks about. Um, I was standing there one day looking at uh, or considering a patient and looking at all the nervines in front of me and I thought, wow, there's 10 nervines here. I would happily put any one of them in this formulation. How do I choose the right one? Mm -hmm. And um, for me, I at that point started deciding to, to look at herbal energetics, talking about um, the, the different qualities they had, whether they might be cooling or heating, uh, what energy they had. 
were they pungent, were they dry? And I, once I got on that path and stayed on that path, I found that the herbs and the mixtures that I was making, that I was making at the time, just seemed to gain something. They they felt right, they tasted right, and I was getting better results with them. Um, and I also it opened up my mind to, to looking at uh, other herbs that I perhaps hadn't considered. I've got about 180 odd herbs on the shelf out the back there. And, um, you know, some of them don't get touched very often. And, I, and, I, and since I've done this, I've looked at it and gone, okay, well, yeah, maybe there is a, a reason to use that herb in place of this one. You know, finding a cooling adapter, for instance, mm. not easy. You know, there's one that I know of, and that's gotcha cola. Um, the rest of them all are quite warming and heating, and that's not always what you're looking for. Yeah, I resonate very strongly with what you've said, Gordon, and we yeah. talk a lot about um, trying to match the herbal medicine to the patient, not only in the actions and indications, but also in the energetics and the taste and whether it's systemically acting and all those kind of things. So it's nice to hear that, you know, you day in and day out are using this to formulate your herbal mixes for these patients. Yeah. And I am a bit brutal that way. I, I, it's a, it's a effect first, taste second. So I'm not <laughs> one who tends to, to pander to, and I, it never served me very well. In, in the past, trying to use tasting and flavouring mixes and things, I didn't really find that it made that much difference to people. I, I'd much rather say, look, this is going to be horrible. Call me what you like if that makes you feel better. Take it and you'll get better. And, you know, usually people are fairly good that way. They are. Yeah. I agree. Mm-hmm. Just quickly, Gordon, you mentioned hemidesmus as one of your immune modulators as choice. Mm-hmm. Of choice, I should say. Um, tell me more about that. Why hemidesmus in this particular space? Well, maybe I'm just a traditionalist. I mean, hemidesmus is probably the original immunomodulator yeah. before or any of the others sort of came came to the fore and I've used it for a long period of time I'm a big believer in when you've used something and seen positive results with it then it it, it actually gets writ large in your brain there's there's um anything that's proven itself to you you tend to go back to it and when you're dealing with people's health I don't think you, you take chances you know so you'll use what you've seen work in the past and they've found that with hemidesmus it's a very um gentle herb I I think it's, it's flavour and its taste are particularly unusual. It doesn't smell like any other herb I've ever come across. Uh, and I find it very useful. I, and I, it sits nicely within a formulation. It's not a particularly high dosage herb. Um, and so it can be squeezed in. I mean, we're always trying to find room, or at least I am, <laughs> trying to find room to like leave a, uh, some room for other herbs to get into a mix. I tend to be someone who uses a number of herbs in a mix. Mm. Um, so I'll use maybe up to eight herbs uh, in a two or 300 mil herbal. Mm. Um, and do so quite happily. Mm. And, and that maybe explains some of the herb. I've done some formulations in my webinars, but instead of going full sort of formulations, what I've done is almost take like a bite, so maybe three or four herbs. Mm. Um, my experience has been that a patient never walks through the door with one complaint. It's usually four, five, or six. So we have to, even though we may be looking at a myo or a pericarditis, we also need to be considering what else is going on with this patient. They'll have other conditions. So the, the small herbals that are made are to be used in conjunction with other herbs that uh, the person may need at the time. You know, we might need to look at a stress component. We might need to look at an infective component or, or maybe something completely different. It might be an autoimmune disease that they have. I know that we, both Christian and myself, um, clinically as well, we never shy away from doing two bottles if we need to because uh, we're on the higher dosing end of of things. But thank you with the hemidesmus. I think I need to explore a little bit more. Um, I think, was it Eric Yarnell that we were talking to about the use of hemidesmus as um, a more modulating type of herb as well? And Mm -hmm. and for respiratory complaints. um, Because it's a great Ayurvedic herbal medicine and it's got more back uh, sort of background and and depth than um was originally thought about i mean when i was taught about heavy desmus it was pretty much this is an immunomodulator use it for rheumatoid arthritis etc and not much yeah immune suppressants so use it in a flare and you know so i think i think it's kind of great the more we get um our practitioners coming on board and talking about these herbs in that manner Mm. that we're going to take some of that information away and start using it clinically as well that's one of the things that i was really surprised about when i started researching herbs and i I tried to cast the net wider than i normally would before this webinar but really quite surprised by some of the herbs and i think i talked to you the other day about rhodiola and and i'm quite surprised about just how much research Mm. There is for rhodiola as a cardioprotective herb. Mm-hmm. I know we could go on and on. We'll move on. <laughs> we love our herbs. And rhodiola is one of our prime um, cardiovascular or cardiotonic type of herbs as well. Yeah. But I guess yeah. one other condition that um, 
is briefly mentioned in your webinar, but it'd be nice to kind of go into a little bit more now if, if you can, is ischemic heart disease. Mm. Because I honestly believe it's a leading cause of death and worldwide, and I honestly believe that herbal medicines just fit so well here. We can do so much here, you know, with that organ protective, anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, and even veno-protective or venotonic properties. So, you know, is there... Is there a focus that you have regarding herbal treatment with these types of patients? And do you have any favourite herbs for yeah. this type of condition? Look, my, um, I guess what's changed in that field in the last five years for me is people coming in with calcium CT scores, okay. um, which I think has been really beneficial, actually. Um, looking at that, we get an idea. Uh, I have a, a patient who I've been seeing for 10 years. He's generally fairly healthy, um, has some immune conditions, um, got a bit of a gourd scenario that affects his heart. Um, but he, you know, generally eats from his own garden, grows his own vegetables, you'd think would be fairly healthy and came in with a calcium CT of 600. Um, so we were not happy about that, but he was particularly not happy about that. So it was a real eye-opener for us to help us to, to see in his case that we need to be doing more work. So I, I really have quite enjoyed the advent of calcium CTs. Um, I've spoken to a couple of local prominent cardiologists in Perth um, who were of the, opinion, the opinion that calcium CTs couldn't be changed. Once it was in place, it was set in stone. I had a patient who was willing to work with me and, and we tried to get her calcium CT down. And over about a six to eight month period, we managed to drop it by about 40 to 50 points and not working particularly hard either. Um, using vitamin K2, the herbs I really like to look at when we're talking about endothelial dysfunction and, and protection, kudzu, Japanese knots, uh, knotweed are my two probable favourites. Good old ginkgo, I don't think we can go past it. Um, there's always one that I'll be looking at. Um, starting to use a bit more epimedium as well, um, like the anti-inflammatory and cardiovascular effects of that. Um, yeah, probably those are the ones I tend to use most. Uh, depends on, on how the person presents as well. I mean, if we're in a state where we're being preventative, mm. they're young enough and wise enough, um, and calcium T CTs aren't too bad, say if there's a dramatic history in the family and we're trying to prevent, then I might be more inclined to use stronger antioxidant herbs as well. So maybe more of the Japanese knotweed, incorporate maybe the green teas as well. Uh, and also, you know, I have a belief when we talk about cardiovascular disease that the single most important thing you can do is exercise. That for me is top of the list. I just don't see how we can go past that. And for me, as an iridologist and sclerologist, the most dramatic changes I see in people's eyes are when their level of inc exercise increases. Wow. If I'm working with them using herbs and nutrients. When they make a decision that they're going to get off the couch and, <laughs> and actually dramatically change from, say, nothing to maybe three or four hours a week, um, that's when we see dramatic changes occur. So I'm a big fan of exercise. I rate sleep as a close second, mm. um, probably food third, I think, appropriate diet, and then nutrients, herbs, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's the way I look at that. All the modifiable lifestyle factors, right? Yeah. Indeed, yeah. Do this morning, 80% contributing to chronic, chronic disease. disease. So, you know, if we can nail those, then we're oh. more than halfway there. Yeah. The uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics tells us 67% of Australians are obese. Wow. Um, wow. I sort of fell backwards off my chair when I heard that. But that's a dramatic number and something that's changeable. Mm, so, so there is hope, I guess. There is, there is hope. Another condition which I find really fascinating, actually, now I've only treated one of these patients in my career so far. Um, hopefully I'll be, this is an ongoing career, though, so I, you know, <laughs> Doesn't I, end I'll improve my knowledge on while we're talking about it. But um, Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, I love that name, by the way. Mm. Um, it's very interesting and I'd love you to explain it and particularly why it's called broken heart syndrome because um, sure. it's different in that regards to the other cardiovascular diseases that we're talking about today or that you talk about in your webinar. Okay, so Tugotsubo or stress-induced cardiomyopathy is its other name or broken heart syndrome, as you say. It's, it's got more names than, than <laughs> anything else, I think. Um, so called because when... Um, what, what happens in Takotsubo is there's a shock of some description that causes the contractility of the left ventricle to be affected. And the misshapen uh, or the shape of that when under scan looks like a Japanese octopus pot, which is where the name comes from. So you'll see a little diagram that I'll show in the webinar of um, the, the ventricle in this position and this 
it looks essentially like a like a pot, I guess, um, sort of that sort of shape. Uh, you, and you'll see from the diagram. I'm not explaining it very well, but you'll see when the diagram makes it much more clear. So that's why it was given that name in the first place. So what causes the shock is the question. Now, it's considered that um, an emotional shock is one of the major causes, and that's probably where the broken heart syndrome scenario comes in. So loss of someone close to you, grieving process, um, what's been happening around the world you know, at the moment uh, particularly is, is showing uh, an increase from, of about 6% over the last two years in, in cases of Takotsuba. So we are going to see a bit more of it. I haven't traded a lot either. I, I must admit I've only seen probably, I think, maybe three or four cases over the last 20 years. Uh, I'm thinking that maybe we're going to see a bit more uh, just based on what we're seeing at the moment uh, statistics-wise. It's, it's an interesting scenario, and it's one that we, we would treat slightly different than other cardiovascular scenarios. So, yes, we, should, we do need to look after the heart. Anything that's going to be protective, cardiotonics, cardioprotectives, yes, still very much warranted. But you'll see in the formulation that I've put together that we're very much considering the nervous system stress levels. So this is a scenario where I like to use one of my, my favourite herbs, which is magnolia. Um, I really like its capacities to lower cortisol, um, it's nootropic. It's it's just got so many properties that are appropriate in this sort of instance. So magnolia is one that I would use here. And you'll see instead of being totally cardiac weighted, my herbal is maybe 20 to 40% cardiac weighted and maybe 40 to 60% uh, nervous system and sympathetic nervous system weighted. It's about helping the person to calm, to recover, um, getting their adrenals back to where they should be. Um, the shock side of things, dealing with that in whatever way you can. Mm -hmm. So we might, this is a scenario where uh, if there's an obvious scenario, if there was an event or something that caused that person problems, uh, this is where I might reach for, say, something like Star of Bethlehem, the bark flower, uh, yeah. because of its capacities to help with shock. Um, I use quite a lot of homeopathy as well. So it may be appropriate to use aconite or, or something along those lines. There's a, there's a range of things. Natmer, Arnica um, are ones that come to mind as well that I might consider. Um, I would also probably look at uh, lifestyle therapies here as well. You're almost always going to have a person probably who's not sleeping well. So we might start to look again. Magnolia and high dosage becomes a, a good sedative, as I'm sure you're aware, mm -hmm. uh, and, and very useful in helping to get people to sleep. And I'm a really big fan of using herbs like California poppy, lavender, um, and kava together. Um, if we're given the opportunity, um, or I might use, um, I use hops occasionally, but not near as much as I used to. I think maybe there's a little bit of personal bias there. I really don't <laughs> like the taste of hops and, yeah. and, and find it difficult to consume myself. So I can make myself have lavender um, and actually have become quite fond of it over the years. Uh, my, I think that the, we get more complaints about, I don't know about yourselves, but I get a lot of complaints about the taste of lavender. But for me, what's happened now is that, peculiar taste now when i taste it, it my body goes oh you want me to go to sleep yeah uh, it's you become conditioned a, a, yourself yeah. indeed slowly yeah pavlov's gordon um over the years it's happened that way and as such uh, I'm, I'm not scared to use lavender with people to help them to get to sleep mm. i get a lot of complaints but <laughs> and some people are just averse to certain um smells and like you know there'll be i have a number of patients that don't like lavender and I have a number of patients that don't like licorice, which always shocks me yeah. because I mm. love the taste mm. and smell of licorice. So I almost just... always, the second question after I say, do you like the taste of licorice? They say red or black. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Okay. But, yeah. We've got work to do here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah we have, yes. <laughs> just on that condition, sorry, I know we'll move on, but just on um, other concomitant, I guess, symptoms. I know with my particular patient that, and we, I treated her over a number of years and she's done it so so well over the years, but she did do a lot of mod modifiable lifestyle changes. So she went and did like a meditation course and mm. um, a whole heap of those types of things to sort of settle herself down and to be able to control it herself. But yeah. one of her key triggers actually was definitely emotion. There was definitely an emotional event of some sort. Mm. Travel was often indicated in that and being in an unfamiliar environment, but she would have quite a significant gut reaction or bowel reaction that would okay. almost be the trigger. Yeah, um, yeah. So for us, it was kind of like this two or threefold treatment of major systems involved. Mm. Do you find that at all? Or do you find that with the couple of patients that you've had that not really that involvement? 
Um, I, I don't know if I could say it followed the same path as your patient, but I would certainly say with the, the patients that I've seen, there's always strong nervous system involvement in, in some manner. Um, it may be insomnia, it may be uh, anxiety, uh, it may be gut-related scenarios. And, and again, in that sort of scenario, I think it's very common for us to see a, a gut response to stress, um, which is why I use so much kawakawa and chamomile and herbs of that nature uh find them i find that they work really nicely in that sort of uh, area so yes yeah, so i i think and i also would suggest what, what you were talking about there uh following up with meditation courses or qigong uh talking to a good counselor if you can get your hands on one these days uh yeah really really beneficial uh and then maybe even uh, i've got a couple of patients who are really benefiting from and being challenged by emdr at the moment Mm. Uh, that's that's something that for a couple of people, particularly when there's been trauma involved, seems to be a really interesting area, not one that I know enough about, um, but certainly seeing patients uh, moving forward when they're doing EMDR. Fantastic. Heard good things about that too. Um, mm. And it's it's nice because you really we really are looking at this naturopathically from going upstream to look at the causative factors from the nervous system sort of triggers and how that affects all the different systems of the body and then helping them move forward with this condition. I only know one person um, with um, Takotsubo. Am I saying it right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to um watching the webinar and getting my head around it a bit better as well. I think, I think we will see. I don't know that it's going to be dramatic, but I think we are going to see more cardiovascular... Well, we are seeing a lot now, aren't we? Stress-induced cardiovascular problems. Um, this is just a more specific facet of it. I just I thought it was worthwhile, because it is on the, the rise at the moment statistically, I thought it was worthwhile at least bringing it to people's attention just so that we know it's out there. Um, thankfully, patients do pretty well with it. Most of them don't go on to have ongoing problems. Although I think somewhere just under 20% can have some residual problems and there have actually been some deaths from it, but it's not normally the case. Okay. And so alongside, I guess, with um, heart damage, we are sort of seeing more patients with cardiac toxicity as well. And, yeah. Um, so yeah. that's, you know, when there is damage to the heart muscle. So we know that this can be caused by a number of different toxins and drugs like chemotherapy, for example. Mm. So what are the main sort of causes of cardiac toxicity that you would see clinically? Well, I was looking at this yesterday too, actually. I did a bit of a, just a scout around just to see. Look, it's probably not upwards of 90% of the cardiac toxicity we see is caused by chemotherapeutic medications. It, it's, it's by far and away the biggest. Um, there's a range of different ones that are probably more problematic. The type 1 damage, which is the more severe and generally considered to be irreversible, is probably mostly, mostly associated with the anthracyclines, uh, things like doxorubicin. Mm. Um, there's, there's quite a, a list, and I go through a reasonably extensive but not complete list of possible uh, medications, uh, chemotherapeutic medications, um, but it would be impossible to go through them all. So I've chosen a couple of them, um, trastuzumab or Herceptin um, and doxorubicin. I'll go into both of those in a little bit more depth. Uh, doxorubicin being the type 1 uh, that generally causes possibly irreversible. Uh, the Herceptin tends to be more irreversible. Um, they work in different ways. It, it's, it's a difficult scenario in working with these drugs. Herceptin has been shown to be uh, probably beneficial and uh, has reduced cases by about 50% uh, and reoccurrences by 33%. It's not something to be sneezed at. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how do we work with these? How do we allow them into our system and try and allow them to do their job but not cause problems? So I will talk a little bit about that and the sorts of herbs we can use around that to try and protect the heart in particular under these circumstances. It's very exciting. It is mm. exciting and, again, very pertinent topic, you know, with the rise of it. It's getting, yeah, look, I mean, everybody knows somebody who's uh, experienced cancer now. I think rates are up around one in three, depending on which type of cancer you're talking about. So... Chemotherapy, uh, chemotherapy is something that we need to consider. I know a lot of practitioners don't want to delve into this area. Some are very drawn to it. So it seems to be, you know, it's either your thing or it's not. But I think having an understanding of, of what might be beneficial, even if you're not helping to treat a person's cancer, if you're treating them just as a patient looking around that, then you still need to be aware of, of what agents the person is using or, or being given. 
um, and what the pros and cons for those agents are and how to be careful around them. If the person is going to be taking them, you don't want to be getting in the way of it if you can help it. Um, and I've had this conversation with a um, very prominent um, uh, oncologist in Perth uh, in regards to what we can and can't do. Yeah, they're, they're not overly welcoming towards us at this stage. And I, I don't know what you found, but that, that's certainly the situation from my perspective. Yeah, I find a bit of a mixed bag, actually. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I guess all we can do is what we can do from our end, which is clear communication of what we're hoping to achieve and what we're hoping to utilise yeah. from our tool belt as well. Yeah. And safety first mm. above anything mm. else. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. And we did some great webinars last year around oncology and obviously the use of herbal medicine. We mm. covered three major stages and one of those major stages was cancer survivorship. Mm. And we are, the numbers of that are just growing and going through the roof. So like you said, even if as practitioners, you're not perhaps treating oncology patients or active, active patients, active mm. cancer patients, you will see people walk through your door that have survived cancer on some front Most and definitely. understanding their history of medicine and what they have taken and what mm. they use as treatment is, is just so important to understand how their systems are working. So I think you're spot on. Couldn't, couldn't um, agree more. I mean, look, we know that uh, the doxorubicins, et cetera, can uh, cause problems up to five years after treatment. Um, irradiation of the chest, same thing. Uh, so, yeah, we really do need to know about these sorts of things and know what we can put in place to try and help the patient to get to that first five-year mark. Mm. And uh, Korean ginseng is my favourite there. Mm. Yeah, the ginsengs. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Panax species. Yeah. Um, you actually mentioned earlier, just going to finish up on this question, Gordon, if I can, you mentioned earlier uh, around some iridology and sclerology markings that you see change with treatment. But mm. one of your impressive parts of your resume is actually your 10-year history in teaching iridology and sclerology, which is alongside herbal medicine, I should say. Um, so I find that fascinating. And it's sometimes a little bit of a dying art in our industry, depending on, Kristen and I spoke about this just the other day and Kristen utilizes it a lot more than me. And I'm sort of like, oh, yeah, I've got to, I've got to get those textbooks out and have, have a look at this. But, um, but I just wonder if you could give us some examples of what you might see in the iris or in the sclera sure. that kind of pertain to cardiovascular disease risk or constitution. Mm. Look, um, myself and another naturopath in Perth about 10 or more like 15 years, maybe probably 20 years ago now, um, we asked a man called Leonard Melmau to come over from America. We organised for him to come and, and do lecture tours. He landed in Perth and I believe he did the Eastern States as well. So he was one of the foremost proponents of sclerology. Now, up until that point, I was an iridologist but always felt like I was doing work with one eye closed or a hand tied behind the back or something, something missing. So Leonard came out. He's a, a really interesting man. Leonard and his wife, Nanita, um, you have to meet them. They, they, I said to them once, we went out to dinner and I said, uh, so what do you guys do on the weekends? And she said, what do you mean? And I said, what do you do for fun? She goes, <laughs> we do iridology seven in the morning till 11 at night every day of the year. They're just totally committed. That's all they did. So the research they did was quite phenomenal. They were, I think they worked out of Las Vegas uh, and they talked to people all around the world. There's a guy called Yevgeny Velkova, who's a working iridologist in Russian hospitals. Um, so they're, they're in contact with people like that. So they had really, really useful information. So that, that's what got me excited about sclerology. So in the sclera, everybody's scleras are white. It's a lot easier to see markings in the sclera than it is in the iris, you know, especially when you're dealing with a brown black iris. So sclerology makes life a little bit easier. The markings that we'd be looking for are at, uh, say, nine o'clock in the right iris. So looking at the person on their left, it takes a while to get your head around this because, you're, <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, and then the, the other marking is at 3 p.m. on the lateral side of the left iris. That's the major area for the heart. Mm -hmm. So you're looking around about here and here on that horizon line, if you like. And then there are other markings just on the insides as well. Then we look at the area closely surrounding the iris. So there's a blue hue that can be seen just around the iris itself, which will help us to understand there might be problems with peripheral vascular issues. Um, or we might see a white band just inside the actual iris, which is sometimes called a cholesterol ring or an sclerosis, or it's got many names. But again, um, when actually put underneath an electron microscope, that ring consists of tiny little lipid particles. Um, and that's what's actually causing the problem. Uh, 
I think almost anybody who sees that marking would know, and I've heard doctors, dentists, pharmacists, you name it, uh, suggest that if you've got that marking, you need to go and get your cholesterol levels checked. Um, I would look at it uh, under, in two ways. Uh, we've done work with a, a gent in Geelong who's been a, a biochemist his whole life and had an interest in iridology. He's looked at the colours associated with the markings in the iris and tried to take them back to their mineral background. One of the things that Perth has is 10 times the amount of barium in our water supply that anybody else does. So that sclerosis, when seen on the side, can sometimes have a gold sheen to it. And the thinking is that gold sheen might be an indicator for excess barium. Now, barium is not considered to be problematic. That's why it was used for barium meals and barium embers and the like. But you can always have too much of a good thing. And as such, we do see problems associated with that. And we see that on hair analysis and people from Perth. We see high levels of barium on a regular basis. So when we're looking at the eye, those, uh, the colour of the sclera will give us a, an indication if it's got a blue-white or a yellow-white. If it's blue-white, it's probably more circulatory-oriented. There's just a proclivity or an inclination in that regard. Um, if it's yellow, we're probably looking more hepatic. Um, when we look at the, the type of virus and the type of person that we're seeing, after looking at 40 or 50-odd thousand of these things, you, you tend to get a feel for a person. If you look at the... Uh, the fibre structure of the iris, you start to get a feel for who you're dealing with. Um, neurogenics, people who have very straight iris structure, very small pupils, um, often ice blue coloured. Uh, people who are often type A personalities, very, very driven. They have a robust physical health, but they have a sensitive nervous system. So you start to get a, a feel for that sort of person, knowing that they're the ones who are going to push themselves too hard and may get themselves into trouble with not sleeping enough, not stopping to eat. Uh, working too long, you know, that sort of thing. So that may not be directly cardiovascular, but if something's not done about it, eventually it will become uh, a cardiovascular issue. They'll, they'll push themselves too hard. So there, we do look for a number of different cardiovascular signs. Uh, we also may see problems associated with someone's had a, a severe infarct. Uh, we might see evidence of that in the iris uh, sometime there afterwards. And I do show a couple of examples of people who have had... Uh, one lady in particular whose uh, heart hasn't been the same since uh, she's had COVID uh, and associated bits and pieces. Uh, and another gent who started off when I saw him in about 2010 um, had minor heart complaints, but really that's not why we were seeing them. Uh, unfortunately for him, his heart has become worse and worse over the years uh, to the point now where he was a candidate for transplant, but unfortunately... Uh, probably too weak to actually have the transplant or mechanical heart. So uh, we, we see a, a kind of progression from one extent to the other. I like to think they're looking at his eyes. They're, they're considering the severity and the extent of that, his kidneys obviously are being dramatically affected by this as well. And yet his iris still looks reasonably okay. You know, I'm using a lot of different herbs with him to protect both uh, kidneys and heart. Mm. So he's unfortunately on amiodarone, which, as you probably well know, has about six pages of side effects associated with it. Um, yes, it's good for the heart, or it seems to help, but uh, does do a hell of a job of compromising the kidneys. Yeah. So, hmm. Such a common complaint, really, isn't it, when you're having some significant health problems and the medication needed for that health problem has, yeah. Has its own um, set of problems. Yeah, but yeah. it's fascinating. Thank you. And sclerology was something I didn't learn in college. And I think that's probably what you mentioned as well, something you did off your own back. And that's well, quite an interesting piece to the puzzle. Yeah, we, the, the other lady, Elspeth and myself, both had the same feeling. We knew there was something more. Um, there was two people that were proponents at the time. One was Leonard Melmau. The other one was a guy called Dr. Jack Tips. Leonard picked it up um, along the way. Jack, uh, the native... Uh, American, uh, yeah, Native Americans, it was a particular tribe who was still using sclerology. Um, his mentor at the time managed to pick up on information. This was in the 60s and kind of then brought it back that way. Jack started researching and going back and going, there's something that's been lost here. And, and sclerology goes right back 2,000 odd years to the um, ancient Egyptians and the Greeks. Uh, and then almost every culture since then has used the eye in some way to have a look at health. And then in the late 1900s, we see uh, a lot of the work was actually done by medical people in hospitals and uh, prisoner of war camps, doing autopsies, confirming things. So, yeah, I, I find for me, iridology for me is an extension of my own intuition. And I think anybody who uses any other form, it, it's a way of honing that intuition for yourself. Um, 
But uh, yeah, I, I would find it very difficult to do a consultation with that at these days. And I do rue the fact that both iridology and homeopathy, what I would call the arts, are not being taught so regularly in our colleges these days. I really do think that's, and there is a need for it. With the young naturopaths that I work with, they haven't been exposed to it and are forever asking me questions about it and wanting to know um, more about iridology and sclerology. And that's the best way, I think, to figure out what you as a practitioner would work well with as part of your toolkit and your assessment um, uh, practice. You know, you've got to be exposed to it to know whether or not it's going to be something that you will do. Yeah, yeah it's not for everybody, that's for sure. No. I but it's a great reminder. Thank you. Yeah, I had I tried live blood analysis and that just was a bad fit for me. It just wasn't what it just didn't work for me. So and I've tried uh, Vega testing and a few other things over the years. But for me, iridology, um, I'm very uh, well conservative. Apart from that, I, I tend to use a lot of blood tests. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very much that way oriented. But I do use iridology just as that that third way of looking at people. That's the awesome thing about naturopathy is that it's it's magical in a way that it combines science and art. You mm. know, this, often that's why people sign up to do naturopathy, you know, because there's those yin and yang almost in, within ourselves that we find within our patients and how we can treat. So yeah. um, it is a great reminder that that's one of our strong arts that we can Perhaps that uh, um, alchemical element, you know, that, that's in all of us, I think, that, that kind of draws us towards naturopathy, the, the mixing of herbs and the... Oh. Yeah, I think it's really, uh, it's either in you or it's not. I, I agree. I agree. I, we love the mixing of the herbs and um, all the energetics and things that bring that. And that's a, another lecture in itself. But we yeah. really do enjoy that part of herbalism, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, Gordon, thank you so much for your time today. And we are really looking forward to your live webinar in a few weeks um, with a live Q&A. So I'm excited to see what people and practitioners bring to the to the questions and see yes, how we go but i'm really fasc fascinated and i love the topic so um i think we're going to learn a great deal so thank you for your time today and being so candid That's lovely to talk to you both